Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning. Anybody else tired of being wet? (laughs) Our basement actually flooded this time uh, this week for the first time that we've had it since we've been here. Not once, not twice, but thrice? Is it thrice? The, the first time after a pump broke, so it wasn't even the rain, but then the second and third times after all that rain and then the snow melted all at once. I feel like I should be preaching like Noah or Jesus walking on the water or something, but I am so tired of talking about water. So let's talk about something else. Talk about fire. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself, because honestly, who else is he going to be talking to at this particular moment? This is amazing. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So from everything that I have read, tending sheep is boring. Sheep are not the most intelligent animals, and so your whole job is to keep sheep from doing dumb things, like getting stuck in a hole or wandering off a cliff, all while making sure the whole time that they have something to eat. Now, I'm sure that there's the occasional exciting moment, but mostly there's a lot of watching, of walking. And Moses has found himself in a place where there is nobody around for company. He's taken the flock way off into the wilderness to help them find food. So when Moses looks up and he notices some flames a little ways off, I imagine that he's a little bit grateful for the distraction, sort of a a break from the humdrum, something new besides grass and rocks. But as he looks more closely, he notices that this particular bush Well, it's burning, but it's not burning up, which is not normal. So Moses goes and he decides to take a closer look. And then the burning bush speaks. It speaks his name. Now, I don't know what your reaction would be in a situation like this. I know that for me, it would probably involve dumbfounded silence as I checked my hearing in the midst of some complete terror. But what does Moses do? But he goes and answers the voice. Here I am. Like, don't call attention to yourself, dude. The burning bush is talking to you. (laughs) Don't come any closer, warns the voice. Take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Now that word holy means set apart or designated for something very important. And our ears should perk up at this point. 
because this is the first time that that word holy has been used in the scriptures since God called the Sabbath day holy way back in the creation account in Genesis 1. Because God is burning inside this bush, the very ground of the mountain is now somehow imbued with God. It's been set apart for something of special significance. And so Moses takes off his sandals, but the voice continues. I am the God of your father and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is at the moment which Moses then covers his face. Now, presumably, up until this moment, he's been looking right at the burning bushes face this whole time but it's only when God gives him these names that Moses decides to hide his own face see despite the fact that Moses was raised in an Egyptian household the Pharaoh's household mind you Moses is a Hebrew by birth he's escaped the murder of all the Hebrew boys in Egypt only because of his mother's courage and because of the quick thinking and the Pharaoh's daughter's compassion he was a child caught between two cultures. He was raised Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He dressed like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. I'm sorry, it's low-hanging fruit. I had to go there. <laughs> was it like this? Is the Yeah, okay. What was I singing? <laughs> Right, so he was like an Egyptian in every way. But based on appearance alone, nobody was going to mistake him for anything other than a Hebrew. And so he was also raised to learn his own history and the culture of his birth family. Because he's the God of Moses' father and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses knows exactly who he's talking to. This is the God of Abraham and his descendants, of which Moses' father Amram is obviously a part. So Abraham, he's the guy who left his homeland to seek a new and better life at God's command. He's the one with whom God the Creator makes this amazing covenant to raise a whole nation of his family that would one day serve the world. Isaac is Abraham's son, the man who, uh, among other things, brought water to his family in times of drought. And Jacob, the usurper of the family birthright, who didn't seem like he'd really amount to much, but who wrestles with the creator and becomes a better man for it. These three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are major patriarchs of Israel's history. And you'll hear their names repeated regularly through the rest of the Bible. In other words, God has given Moses a track record in these names. This is their God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is not the so-called gods of the Egyptians or the Canaanites. And when Moses realizes who he's talking to, he hides his face and he removes his shoes. The shoes out of obedience, the face out of respect, and maybe just a little bit of terror. Because when the creator of everything talks to you, a little humility is probably warranted, don't you think? Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have 
from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now Moses wasn't exactly unfamiliar with the suffering of his birth family. He'd watched it all growing up from Pharaoh's palace. But he's probably a bit surprised that God is familiar with it. In the ancient world, like today, I would say, uh, the power of your deity was associated with your condition. If you were not doing well, say your nation were all slaves, then your nation's deity was probably kind of weak. We still hear this today, right? I've certainly been told, well, answer my prayers for healing or finances or world peace or a parking spot, whatever, so that God must not be real. Same deal back then. This is not a new argument. Furthermore, since the pagan deities of Canaan and Egypt were essentially removed from humanity, they were, they were in their golden temples and their cloud cities and the like, they didn't really care about human suffering. They cared what humanity could do for them. Now, they might deign to offer some of their superpowers if you did something for them, if you did enough for them, but it would cost you. Sometimes it would cost you your firstborn child. The pagan gods caused great suffering. And yet, here's God saying exactly the opposite. I have seen the oppression of my people. Now, that word seen is probably not the best English translation of the word because it encapsulates a whole lot more. It's more of an experiential word. God is fully aware of what is happening in the sense that God experiences their pain as his own. This is awareness as participant, not awareness as an observer. The God that is in the bush is the same God who has experienced Israel's slavery as his own and is going to make good on his promise to their ancestor, Abraham. So we just talked about Abraham. This is the promise to which God is referring in Genesis 22. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And though your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Now it's been literally generations since this promise was made. And at the moment when the promise was made, all seemed possible. After all, the old man Abraham and the old lady Sarah didn't think they could even have a child anymore. Yet here they are, receiving the promise from God, Isaac alongside his father. But generations later, those descendants in Moses' time, to them the promise felt, well, at the very least, lost. So here, God begins a process of restoration good on his promise. 
God is saying, I've heard their cries. I've entered into and experienced their suffering, and I'm now going to do something about it. Oh, and one other thing. Now go, Moses, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Ah, the sound of the other shoe. It's funny how often God uses people to do his work. And I actually think that's part of the reason Moses was asked to remove his shoes. Bear with me here. Not only is it a sign of respect to remove one's shoes, say, coming into another person's house, but if the very ground is saturated with God, then by removing his shoes, Moses is actually taking a step closer to God. While the holy ground is a set-apart space, right? God wants Moses there with him. It's a moment of intimate connection with his creator. This is an invitation for Moses to come just as he is. Nothing separating him from God. And it was a sort of, it was a start for preparing Moses for this incredible journey that he's going to face in what is now the second half of his life. And it's probably a good thing that God starts there because this is Moses' reaction. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? There it is. Moses is not freaked out by the burning but not burning up bush. He's not freaked out when God started talking from the burning but not burning up bush. But now God's gone too far. Moses has been out in this wilderness for 40 years. He's got a wife and he's got kids. He's got a ton of sheep to take care of. He's not exactly a spring chicken anymore. And oh yeah, he hasn't been to Egypt in a really long time. Because the last time he was there, he was run out of Egypt for murdering an Egyptian soldier. You could say that the voice from the fire is asking him to take a step back into the fire, as it were. But God answers him, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So today we begin this new series where we're exploring a question that's very near to my heart. What is worship? Is it a feeling that we get? Is it a set of tasks or is it a set of rituals that we do? Is it a certain time that we spend? Is it something that we do alone or do we do with others? Can we worship anything? Should we? What does it mean to worship? So I went and I looked up uh, our dictionary definition of worship, and the short version is this. To worship is to respond to greatness. As far as definitions go, I don't know, that's I don't know, satisfyingly vague. I do think this definition is one we can work with, though, because 
I think this is one that scripture agrees with. If you take your Bible and you flip it to the other end, to the book of Romans, Paul says this. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this little verse, so we're going to take five weeks to do it. But if we were to take the definition from the English dictionary and compare them, you're going to see all of it in there. In view of God's mercy, responding to greatness, that's the greatness. Offer yourselves, that's the response. So according to Paul, to worship God our creator is to respond to God's mercy. Again, satisfyingly vague, right? But I want to start with that first word, therefore. Therefore is an encapsulation of how we get the response. Because of what happened before, therefore, we do this. Because of God's mercy, because of God, we offer ourselves. God comes first. There is no response to God without God making it possible. We have to be aware of God in order to respond. Now, I think for Moses, God captures his attention in the burning bush and then gives him a name. Now, I know I've said this about a thousand times before, but it always bears repeating because it's so different from how we do things today. Names in the ancient days were more than just a label. Your name was meant to completely encapsulate who you were, where you came from what you were about. Your name was a story. So when Moses asks God, who shall I tell them who sent me? He's asking God to reveal something about himself to Moses to then reveal to the Hebrews. But God's answer to Moses' complaint about being the wrong person for the job is to say, that doesn't matter. I am who I am. Now, the Hebrew verb to be is a strange word. From what I'm understanding, it's the one that condenses every tense of the word into the same word. So God's answer to Moses' question, who shall I say sent me, is a bit of a grammatical conundrum for us in English. God is simultaneously saying, I was, and I am, and I will be, all at the same time. But also, I am who I am, I am who I was, I will be who I was, I was who I will be, and any other combination of those tenses that you can come up with. In other words, God is ongoing. God was and is and is to come. It's the same in character and conscience at all times throughout history and beyond. God remains God, separate, not us. God will be who God is regardless of who we choose to be. We cannot change God. And if you were paying attention, you'd also notice that God gave Moses another version of this at the beginning of his answer. I will be with you, Moses. Same verb, same weird grammar thing. I was with you. I am with you. I will be with you, Moses. God's revealing himself in a new way to Moses here. He gives Moses God's eternal name, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And what an assurance that is. I mean, maybe not for Moses in that moment. He still has a few questions after this. It goes on for a little while. 
but an assurance for us now. We have the benefit of thousands of years of history to look at and see how God can be trusted to be with us in story after story. We get to see how Moses and the Hebrews were provided for in the desert, how they were given their new land, led there by a pillar of fire and smoke. We get to see how God was with David and he saved the people of Israel from destruction at the hands of an invading nation. We get to see how Ruth was adopted into a new family because of God. We get to see how God was with Elijah as he defended the people from false prophets. We get to see how God helps Esther save her people from a planned slaughter. We get to see Jesus, God with us, in skin and sandals and a zip code. We get to see how Jesus lived, caring for us, teaching us, reconnecting us with the God of life. We get to see how Jesus gave his life for ours. We get to see how salvation came from the God who couldn't stay dead. I love the phrase that Paul writes, this living sacrifice, offered, transformed, burning but not burning up like the bush. God is the creator, the God of life, the God who takes what is dead and dying and transforms it. It resurrects into new creation. So God inhabits the bush. He burns fiercely enough to capture Moses' attention, but he doesn't consume the bush. The bush is still the bush. It's still living as a beacon to further God's mission. And so we get to see that Jesus, God with us, is killed on a cross and buried in a cave and he can't help but live because that is in his very nature. Jesus resurrects and then says that the creator God is with us. Jesus is with us even until the end of the age. Sound familiar? God was with us. God is with us. God will always be with us because that is who God is. We need to start noticing. We need to start being aware. We need to pay attention. There's, a, there's another funny little grammar thing in Romans 12 that I think um, it speaks to us as Americans uh, who have a fairly strong bent toward individualism. Like, we think we're very self-sufficient people. This response to God, this worship, it can be done alone. We as individuals do respond to God's mercy on our own. But it's especially important to worship together, to respond to God's mercy together. Paul writes, offer yourselves, and the English hides this a bit because yourselves is actually plural. I love the way that Texans say it, all y'all. Offer yourselves, offer all y'all selves, as a living sacrifice, a singular living sacrifice. Worship is not something that we only do alone. Our whole lives must by necessity include others. And so this is why, as Paul writes elsewhere, we must not forsake gathering together. We we like to do things our own way. And so when those pesky other people have their own ideas about how things ought to be done and they start getting in the way, we think we can just go off on our own and still worship by ourselves. But that is not the spirit or truth of who God is, nor is it who he calls us to be. See, we are meant to respond. We are meant to choose 
to offer ourselves, our whole selves, our mind, our body, our emotions, our spirit, our relationships, our community, alone, together, trusting that God will bring life to the full in each of us and in all of us, all together. God does not impose himself upon us. He gives us the ability to choose so that we would choose to love him, to respond to him, just like he chooses to love us. See, worship started with God, and we respond. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that, individually and collectively. You may have noticed that I have not yet mentioned music once. Music can be worship, but so can sleeping. So can giving. So can prayer. So can serving in justice and mercy for those who are in need of it. So can rest. So can caring for others in need. To worship in spirit and truth can take so many different forms, but every single one of them must reflect the character of the God who is the subject of our response. See, God wasn't asking Moses for just one piece of him. If you read the story in its entirety, you'll see how God goes on to use every bit of who Moses is, flaws and all, to further God's mission. That Moses is not capable of what God is asking does come up. In fact, it is his first objection. But God doesn't seem to care. He accepts that it's true. Yep, you're flawed. And then simply repeats, I will be with you. Likewise for all of us, we are to respond with all that we are. No part is left out of the deal. Each of us is probably going to lean towards one kind of response more than the others. This is the beauty of God's people and of our diverse, weird, and wonderfulness. But God asks us for our whole selves, full participation, regardless of whether or not we think we're capable. Now, we're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks, but for now, your homework assignment... Yes, that's an excited response right then. (laughs) Is to brainstorm together all the different ways that you can respond to God's mercy in the coming week. How can you respond on your own? How can you respond together? And then, go do it. See, worship is not a response if it isn't an action. We don't come here week after week to simply check off the proverbial box in our get-into-heaven cards. We are here because it's one part of a larger life of responding to God's mercy as we seek to live our lives in this world the same way that God we worship desires us to. God doesn't seek perfection from us, but he does seek transformation. The very next verse in Romans says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Other translations say, don't conform to the pattern of this world. The broken, shattered, messy pattern of anger and loneliness and hatred and fear. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. To worship God is to live with God's mercy and mind in everything we do. Amen? Amen. Let it be so. Let's pray together.
God, may we know you. Maybe you. May we be aware of the ways that you have been with us in the past, how you are with us here in the present, how you are going to be with us in the future. God, give us the assurance that comes with that kind of knowledge, that kind of experience. Thank you for being with us, for coming to be like us, becoming one of us, to know things, to know us the way that we are. Thank you for saving us so that we could be restored in relationship to you. God, help us to respond to you in the best of possible ways, in your character. May we grow to be more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray together. Amen.